Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Hi. Hi. Do you want to do Patreon? (laughs) Sure. So we are going to give a shout out to our new patrons this week. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene, and they get a shit ton of bonus episodes as well as episodes that are ad-free. I don't know where I... Seriously, Melon? Dude, Melon, shut up. (laughs) I don't know why I started saying years ago... They donated over at Patreon.com instead of subscribe. Oh, okay. Because it's not really a donation. It's a subscription. It's a subscription. I just got in the habit of saying it like right. that. Right. It's a subscription. So you get to spend 5 to $10 a month or whatever, and you get additional content yeah. as well as ad-free episodes. If you want to make a donation, you can do that over at PayPal. Just give yeah. us a one-time donation. Yeah. People do that. <laughs> they do do Some that. Some people like doing that yeah. just because they don't want to do a subscription. Uh, anyway, let's thank our patrons. We have Emma, Heather, Joshua, Lauren, Nora, Angela, Anna, Willow, Bald Adonis, Amy, Abigail, Megan, Nicola, Glasgow, Adam, Tracy, Michael, Whitney, Suzanne, Allison, Abby, Grace, Aaron, Jean, and Laura. Thank you, guys. Thank you all so much. Uh, Yeah. Now it's your turn. Now it's my turn. Take it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is part three, the final part. (laughs) It's not the... I'm not... I don't want to say it's the final chapter. Okay. Because that alludes to the Friday the 13th part four, the final chapter. Oh, got it. What's... I mean, I should have come up with a better, like a trilogy, a trilogy Um, name for this. The final kill. <laughs> like um, The Empire Strikes Back. Is that the third installment in the original right. Star Wars? so it's Wars? like The Syndicate Strikes Back. Ooh. That, Desi, I should have called you earlier. <laughs> okay, so this is part three, the conclusion to our Bugsy Siegel series. I'm really proud of myself for squeezing it all into this one last yeah, episode. I didn't know until like today, I think. It was looking like it could have been a four-parter. We have a lot to get to, so let's get started. My main source again for this series is the book Bugsy Siegel, The Dark Side of the American Dream by Michael Schneerson. It's a great book. There's a lot of really interesting information in there, and I recommend it if you want to know even more details not mentioned in this series. So where we last left off, the case against Siegel in the murder of Harry Big Greeny Greenberg was dismissed just before Christmas of 1940. Remember, he got to go home to his family. At that time, there was a fake butler who was actually an investigative journalist living there. In the fall of 1941, the new L.A. district attorney was still determined to try Siegel for this murder. 
They would seek to have their two key witnesses, Abe Kid Twist Relis and Al TikTok Tannenbaum, flown in from New York to testify. Skeagle, 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 up, zap, skip, Skeagle. Stop. You fucking bitch. I'm sorry. I wish everyone could have seen Desi's face when she did that because it was so intense. That's part of it. That was part of it was the facial expression. Well, when you're scatting, you got to get like all jazzy. (laughs) Seagull skipped town. Oh, that was hard. (laughs) That was fine. Now it all makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, come on. Siegel skipped town to go to Lake Tahoe during the grand jury hearing in which Tannenbaum gave his statement. Relis was being kept under guard at a hotel in Coney Island while he awaited testifying. Despite being kept under lock and key and watched round the clock by armed guards, on November 12th, 1941, Relis was found dead on the hotel's second floor landing in an apparent suicide. Hmm. A makeshift rope made out of bed sheets tied together was found dangling near the body. Without Relis to corroborate Tenenbaum's testimony, a jury would find Siegel not guilty of the murder in 1942. Damn. These mobsters get off like so many times before they actually like pay for anything, usually. Yeah. Before- I mean, I guess it's like witness tampering a lot of the times, right? Like Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not I'm not saying shit. Me either. If anyone asked me anything. I didn't see Jack shit. I didn't see, <laughs> see Jack fucking shit. By this time, Siegel had turned his sights toward Vegas. At this time, Las Vegas was a far cry from the Vegas that we know today. It was a desolate desert town populated by a few Wild West-style casinos. It wasn't a tourist destination, and it was free from any sort of frills. Like, some of these casinos literally had sawdust on the ground. Some of my favorite old photos are photos of Vegas's transformation from this deserty period to what it became. Yeah. Like, I love seeing those construction photos. They're so cool to me. I you I think you follow it too, that Instagram account of vintage Las oh, Vegas. Oh yeah, I just love looking at those pictures. Ugh. Even once it was built up, it's just so different and cool looking. Like, yeah. I don't know, I just love it. This I wish bo- I could go to that that Vegas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would love that. Like as much as I love going to Las Vegas now, I would love even more to go to Vegas in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. At this time, none of the casinos had hotels. This would be a concept that Siegel would help revolutionize. Oh. Though he was not the first to include a hotel at the casinos. That would be the doing of Tommy Hull, who owned El Cortez and El Rancho Vegas Hotel and Casino. Now, El Cortez is still in operation today. They haven't changed the signage. I have stayed there before. It is on Fremont Street. There's a lot of hotels down there. There's a lot of hotel. There's a lot of, I mean, that's what they call old Vegas. And they're, I think the oldest continuous operating hotel down there is the Golden Gate. Okay. I think it only stopped being a casino during Prohibition briefly. 
But what, what did people, I'm curious if you read what people did when there was no hotels, they would just come for the day to gamble and then go home. It basically. was locals. Oh, it was only locals. It was mostly just locals. So who was living there? No, though? there was hotels. There oh. just wasn't hotels at the casino. It wasn't like there were a few hotel casinos, but it wasn't it. like every casino was also a hotel. Right now, it's like pretty much all of them, and there was nothing on the strip. Yeah, so these are the these hotels: El Cortez, El Rancho Vegas. These are all on Fremont Street. But there were people visiting Vegas to gamble, and then the locals were people who worked in these places. Yes, kind of. Yes. By the early 1940s, Siegel had bought shares in several Las Vegas casinos. In addition to these shares, he wanted to control his own race wire and later his own hotel and casino. With the help of Mickey Cohen, Siegel's Trans-American Race Wire would take over Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Unfortunately for Siegel, in 1944, his so-called clean record was wiped out when he was arrested for bookmaking and conspiracy while at the Sunset Towers Hotel with George Raft and Alan Smiley. Siegel took a deal, and the felony conspiracy charge was dropped, and he was made to pay a fine of $250. So obviously not the first time he's arrested, but the first time he's convicted of anything. Right. And does that affect his gambling license or anything? Or no. no. Okay. Around this time, Siegel sold his house on Delfern Drive, and his wife, Esta, had packed up the girls and moved back to New York. They weren't divorced yet, but Siegel had already fallen in love with another woman. Siegel met Virginia Hill through George Raft. At the time, she was j- dating Joe Adonis. Ooh. But, <laughs> but when her and Siegel met, it was game over for both of them. I what is did you see Joe Adonis? I've seen a picture of him, but I don't think he's I don't I don't remember what he looks like, but I'm sure he doesn't sound as hot. I'm sure he's not as hot as Siegel. Well, because just the name, it's like, well, me, you're not Adonis. Yeah, how <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like a how little Adonis. Much. Are you? Oh, he's yeah, he's not an Adonis to me. Yeah, here you want to see a picture of him? Oh yeah, he's not my type. Uh, but no, he's no Ben Siegel. I don't think so. Ben Siegel is the hot boy, and we've we talked Virginia's about that a lot. Like, let's go. Oh yeah, I mean, this was their Dreamweaver moment. Both okay, of them good. seeing each other. Virginia Hill was born in Lipscomb, Alabama, in 1916. Her father was an abusive alcoholic. A seven-year-old Virginia allegedly hit him over the head with a frying pan during one of his drunken rages. Nice. That's the type of household this was. Yeah, so she likes bad boys now. <laughs> yeah, I think When you so. have that upbringing. <laughs> I think so. She dropped out of school after eighth grade, got married at 15, and then she divorced a few years later. She relocated to Chicago where she found work as a waitress and as a sex worker. In 1934, she met Joe Epstein, who was a very wealthy bookmaker and an associate of Al Capone. Epstein essentially bankrolled Virginia's life, showering her with gifts and cash. Along with her brother Chick, Virginia got into the race wire business with the help of Epstein. According to Michael Schneerson's book, Hill was entrusted to place bets at the tracks and be a courier with substantial sums. Chick would recall trips to nearby airports to pick up money sent by Epstein. As a bag woman, Hill met, the, met most of the mob's top figures, like Frank, from Frank Costello and Meyer Lansky to Lonnie Zwillman and Joe Dodo. 
Virginia also admitted to sleeping with many different guys in the mob. Nice. She was sort of passed around. I like these women who just kind of get hooked up with the mob and then they're just kind of always around. Yeah. <laughs> like she, they're friends with them all. She's like, like the queen of the gangsters moles. Yeah, absolutely. She definitely deserves her own episode. I oh, mean, cool. her life even beyond Bugsy Siegel is wild. And I think we should cover her at some point. Cool. Like even, I mean, it's, I didn't go too, that's why I'm not going too deep yeah. into her backstory right now because we have to cover her. Okay. When her and her brother moved to Los Angeles in 1938, 22-year-old Virginia Hill tried her hand as an actress, even landing a contract with Universal, but she soon abandoned that career. Like Siegel, Hill was reckless with her spending and often could be seen in gambling joints blowing cash. She was apparently nicknamed the Flamingo because of her flaming red hair and the way her face would flush when she would drink. Nice. <laughs> I think Siegel likes redheads. Is his wife redhead? Yeah. Oh, interesting. So I, I'd definitely hook I up with him. I think you have a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would be into it. So, yeah, she was famous for her red hair, uh, Virginia Hill. Though Siegel and Hill were now an item, he couldn't stop her from partying and fucking other men, and it made him furious. Ugh, I love her. <laughs> <laughs> Only he was allowed to be a philanderer, Desi. Of course. When he would yell at her, she would just yell right back and cuss him out. Be like, you got a problem with me fucking other guys? Yeah. Too fucking bad. And he loved it. Oh, (laughs) This made his dick so hard because it was unheard of that any woman would talk back to him in this way. Yeah. And act- it's like that scene where um Lorraine Bracco yells at Ray Liotta when they first he like stands her up and she embarrasses him in front of all his friends. Yeah. Yeah. It's hot. I mean he's like, wow, I've met my match. Yeah. This woman is this is like the woman version of me. Yeah. So he's like, like a hot head. That's hot. Yeah. Obviously they were made for each other, but it was still a dangerous combination. Of course. When these two <laughs> when these two get together, look, yeah. it may be hot, but it's usually this stuff ends in disaster. Yeah. When the pair checked into the Chateau Marmont, screenwriter Edward Anhalt, who lived next door, recalled their screaming matches. These were screaming matches that always ended in loud, passionate fucking. <laughs> the hate fuck. The hate they would I mean, and she was a vase thrower. That's the kind of fights she would get in. She was like an object thrower, smashing glasses, just, I don't know, furs flying. Yeah. uh, And then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she probably threw threw a few minks. She threw whatever was around. Whatever was around. And then the next thing you know, they'd be fucking. Mm -hmm. Tale as old as time. A tale as old as time, Desi. After a few years of making money through Las Vegas casinos, Siegel came to the syndicate with a new business proposition in 1945. He wanted to build his own hotel and casino from the ground up, a luxurious oasis in the desert the likes of which Las Vegas had never seen before. Siegel wanted to construct the building on a 33-acre plot of land off Route 91, a fair distance away from where all the other Vegas casinos were located on and around Fremont Street. Oh. This location would be known as the Strip later. Yes. It would become the Strip. The location was in the middle of nowhere, and people were like, Ben, are you nuts? Like, it's 
why is this place so far away yeah. from all these other places? According to Schneerson's book, there are actually a few different versions of who exactly decided to build on this specific plot of land. One version credits Meyer Lansky with the idea. The version, though, that is most likely the right version, based on the facts, is that this plot of land was first owned by Billy Wilkerson, who was a wealthy publishing scion and nightclub owner, who saw the for sale sign on his way to the airport. Billy Wilkerson perhaps deserves his own episode as well. He had a very interesting life. Uh, he's the screenwriter. No, he's like uh, like he's a publishing magnet. Oh, a publishing. And he owned Ciro's. Right. Oh, and the yeah. Trocadero and a lot cool. of sort of famous LA hotspots yeah. of the day. But you he should had, write him down. Yeah, I mean, I was just reading sort of about. Other stuff going on in his life, and he definitely yeah. probably deserves an episode. According to one of Wilkerson's friends, he was persuaded to purchase the land to build a casino to supplement his own gambling habits. This guy famously was like a gambling addict, and he would go and put down a ton of money and just lose it all. He put a down payment on the property, but he needed more funding. He enlisted Siegel Associates, Mo Sedway, and Gus Greenbaum for help running his hotel casino in exchange for a stake in the business. But he still needed to raise more money. What ended up happening instead is that he lost $200,000 gambling, and now he was even more fucked. Because he tried to raise the money through gambling. Ugh. He's like, I'm going to win. <laughs> I'm going to win like a million dollars. How do you have that mindset? <laughs> <laughs> And then he would go back and be like, well, now I'm going to win that back that I just lost. Gotta win the money back. Like, why would you ever lose it? (laughs) (laughs) Wilkerson conceded to his partners that he couldn't do this and he was going to have to sell them the deed. In his letter to Sedway and Greenbaum, he said, I have become convinced that Las Vegas is too dangerous for me. I like gambling too much, like to shoot craps and drive myself nuts. And the only way I can defeat it is to keep away from the place that has it. True. But a few months later, Wilkerson was like, mm, okay, I changed my mind. I actually do want to do this. <laughs> Let, let's do it. Look, this is a very addict mentality. Yeah. I 100% understand his thought process here. Yeah. Uh, he was like, yeah, we're, we're going to do it. When you're down, you want out. <laughs> <laughs> you for, when you forget how bad it can be, you're like, wait a minute, it's, I love this. It's going to be different this time. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be different. Construction began in December of 1945 on the hotel casino that Wilkerson decided would have a casino floor with no windows and no clocks. And that is something that casinos are famous for. You can't tell what's up or down (laughs) inside. Disconcerting. The book. Uh, like alludes that this was he came up with this idea. He's like, you know, what would make me gamble even more <laughs> <laughs> is if I didn't know what time of day it was. I like how he's already a hardcore gambler. Like, why did he need to make it even like harder for him to leave? Like, oh yeah. So he's like, yeah, this is what keeps people in the casino. Is we have zero clocks on the wall. And you can't tell what time of day it is outside. It's yeah. the same lighting throughout the entire day in the yeah. casino. Yeah. Among the amenities Wilkerson planned was a golf course, a beauty salon, a spa, stables with horses, Ooh. a giant pool, and a gym complete. And also, uh, 
there would be 250 rooms for guests. Okay. All of this would be outfitted with the finest furnishings. This was getting expensive. Wilkerson decided he needed to raise some more money. So he hit the tables again. (laughs) And he lost. Oh, no. But he did manage to get a $1 million investment from a guy named G. Harry Rotherberg. Rotherberg was a former bootlegger who was introduced to him by Lansky, Sedway, and Greenbaum. They negotiated a two-third stake in the hotel, and Wilkerson would have complete creative control over the hotel casino. Following this investment, Siegel showed up to the construction site in March of 1946. And he's like, hey, I'm here. Yeah. How do I get in? How do I get in? (laughs) Basically... Siegel had previously owned El Cortez, and he had sold it and made a profit. So he's like, I want to take this profit that I made and invest in Wilkerson's new hotel casino. Siegel knew Wilkerson from frequenting Ciro's and the Trocadero, and he was like, I like this dude. Yeah. He knows how to make a hit. Yeah. He admired him. He thought, I would love to work with a guy like this. And yeah. this is the perfect opportunity to create my vision of yeah. building a hotel casino from the ground up. Virginia Hill's nickname was said to become the inspiration for the name of this hotel casino. The Flamingo. The Flamingo. Yeah. But a few weeks into working together, Siegel and Wilkerson became irritated with each other. Oof. I mean, this was a... Volatile one of, match. One of those friendships... I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but do you ever meet someone and you're like, wow, I'm really, I really like this person and you become fast friends and then like something happens? Yeah. And you're like, oh wait, this is too much or this is wrong. Yeah. No, I've, I've had that happen before. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't happen much anymore. No, not for me. It hasn't happened for a while. Cause I started being like, oh, I need to like space things a little, <laughs> like don't go in. Like that's, don't you know go what I mean? That hard. No. I think they like did that thing where they just go in so hard and they're probably like, Siegel's probably like, I'm obsessed with you. And Wilkerson was probably like, no, I'm obsessed with you. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, wait, you're a personality disorder or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's like, to me, this, that's exactly how it went down. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In June of 1946, Siegel created the Nevada Projects Corporation, of which he made himself president. The corporation would have several shareholders in the Flamingo under Siegel. Because the Rotherberg brothers kicked in a million dollars, they were awarded 245 shares. Lansky had 100 shares, Wilkerson had 125 shares, and Siegel had the most out of any individual of 195 shares. Selling shares in the company proved to be profitable, and Siegel began selling them out like hotcakes. I'm always like so confused by these things because I was like, well, don't you have to have the amount of shares up top and yeah. then you divide it? You can't just keep making shares. <laughs> well, that's what Siegel did. Yeah. Is he just kept making up shares in the it's company. It's like a Ponzi scheme almost. Yes. Yeah. Siegel got Wilkerson to sell off half of the property in exchange for more shares. This move led to an 
agreement that Wilkerson would be in control of constructing the casino while Siegel had con- control of con- constructing the hotel. Okay. So they're like, we're going to separate yeah. the duties for this. The hotel and the casino were now being built by two different architects and construction crews. Oh. So this is not even a collaborative effort okay. anymore. So they're on their own hiring their own crews. Yeah. Um, Wild. Doesn't seem that smart to me. No. But Siegel was a novice when it came to constructing a hotel, and he was making mistakes left and right. Siegel walked into the Flamingo's penthouse, which was being built for him, and almost hit his head on a beam. The penthouse had been constructed by a crew that was significantly shorter than Siegel. Oh. So they built... I don't know what they were thinking. How short are they? <laughs> <laughs> he had a team of Oompa Loompas constructing But how tall it. is he? He's not like he's that like, tall, yeah. but he's not... But that's weird to hit your head. I don't know what happened there, but I mean, that's just one example of this disa- right. disaster. They didn't know what they were doing. Construction crew is like he hit almost hit his head on this beam, and he's like, "Hey, yeah." The whole roof had to come off, and they had to fix this room. So yeah. this wound up costing Siegel twenty two thousand dollars. <gasps> oh my god! Just for this repair, and this is nineteen forty six money. Yeah. The kitchen was also fucked up. The ovens took up most of the room, like they were too big and the room was too small. So people couldn't. Why do you need a huge oven? <laughs> <laughs> like people couldn't turn around. Yeah. And it's like Siegel was like, this is going to start a fucking grease fire. It's like a New York City apartment kitchen or something. <laughs> yeah, basically. And so a wall in the kitchen had to be knocked down and pushed back. Oh, God. This fix cost $30,000. Oh, my God. Siegel's lawyer, who was a guy named Louis Weiner Jr., recalled that fixing the boiler rooms cost him the most. He said when they went in to put the boilers in, they couldn't get them in because the rooms were too small and the hall too narrow. So they had to put the boiler room about 200 feet away and build a structure around it. This endeavor cost him $115,000. Damn. Though Wilkerson was supposed to have sole control over the casino, Virginia Hill took it upon herself to do the furnishing and like the decorating. Ooh. And she did not have high class taste. She <laughs> well, she was like, we're going to have lime green carpeting and tomato red Ooh. boots. And I mean, it was very sort of over the top. It was gauche. Yeah, but fun in I its mean, own way. Look, <laughs> I appre- that can be appreciated if done right. Obviously, casinos are uh, known for being over the top yeah. looking, uh, but this was not the sort of tasteful styling that they had envisioned necessarily. No. It they was, wanted to do like a Hollywood glam type thing. I think so. By this point, Wilkerson's initial estimate of $1.2 million to build the Flamingo was ballooning to astronomical heights. Meanwhile, Siegel and Hill had been living in the penthouse of the Last Frontier Hotel and would take meetings in their room. The architect, Richard Stadelman, was alarmed to find both of them naked in bed, (gasps) covered by a bedsheet when he would come over to meet with them. Siegel would be like, pull up a chair. (laughs) She's taking minutes. <laughs> <laughs> ben and Esther Siegel finally divorced in August of 1946. She knew that Virginia Hill was not just some fling. Joe Epstein said of Hill, once that girl is under your skin, it's like a cancer. It's incurable. Ooh. So she's like, 
She's got her hooks in him. She's got her hooks in him, for sure. Esta had called on Meyer Lansky to talk some sense into her husband, but he told her that unfortunately there was nothing he could do. She's like a cancer. (laughs) What can we do? Yeah, what can we do? Joe Epstein said she was a cancer. I can't cure cancer. And Meyer basically said the same thing to her. He's like, they're like two teenagers in love. I can't pull them apart. They're insane. Right. So she was like, fuck, there's nothing I can do. Even the threat of divorce couldn't release Siegel from the grips of Virginia Hill's diamond level pussy. Yeah. Like, yeah. she wasn't letting go. Siegel did give Esta a very generous divorce settlement. He also bought Esta and his daughters a nice apartment on Central Park West in Manhattan. Ooh. Coincidentally, Lansky and his wife, Anna, divorced around the same time, too. Earlier that year, a new federal agency known as the Civilian Production Administration ordered that the construction on the Flamingo be halted. (gasps) The agency was formed to redirect construction materials to veterans to build homes with. This this is immediately following World War II. The CPA said that construction started on non-essential buildings starting after March 26, 1946, had to be stopped. And so a telegram was sent to the Flamingo, which was then ignored. Siegel's lawyer argued that construction had actually begun in December of 1945. The CPA manager allowed for construction to resume. A ruling that was welcomed by Senator Pat McCarran, as Siegel had donated a hefty sum to his campaign. So like locals and local Vegas officials right. were fine with this casino being constructed. They're like, well, it's bringing jobs in. Yeah. And we want this luxury casino to go up. Uh, one dude, however, was not happy about the construction resuming. And that was FBI agent A.E. Ostolthoff. Fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> he was... He sounds like a dork. This guy was a total nerd cop. And he wanted construction halted immediately. He did not like this establishment. I want, um, this construction to be stopped immediately. <laughs> <laughs> That's a direct quote from him. That's actually what he sounded like. He also believed that the head of the CPA would, was bribed by <sighs> Siegel, and that's why they were able to resume construction. After speaking with J. Edgar Hoover... Ostolthoff sent a surveillance team to the Flamingo in July of 1946. Mm. There were 10 FBI agents that were sent to surveil, and they were obvious cops. Like, everyone was like, we know these guys are fucking cops. They showed up. It's like, you know how you can spot an undercover cop from a mile away? Yeah. Because they're always wearing bootcut jeans. (laughs) I mean, it's always, you always know. Yeah. It's just, in general, even if it's just cop behavior, yeah, those people stand out a mile away. The hall monitor people. Yeah. And these guys all had like crew cuts and they were wearing like black boring suits. It's and they're like, just not fun. Yeah. They too. just, they just sucked. Yeah. So everyone was like, okay, there's like cops surveilling. Ooh. Ooh what are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> oh, we're just eating bagels. Like... <laughs> And when Siegel got wind that his penthouse at the last frontier and his office above the boiler room at another Las Vegas club had been bugged, he acted accordingly. 
Oh. So he's like, I. he figured out yeah. that these rooms that he was in the most, that he might have sensitive meetings at, were bugged at yeah. this point. He didn't talk business in the penthouse, and his conversations in his office were very vague. His phones were also tapped, so he, he had to speak in code. I'm sorry, this name, I can't. Ostelfoff <laughs> reported back to Hoover saying Siegel, quote, has never engaged in honest toil and does not legitimately have available the large sum of money so far spent in the construction of the Flamingo Hotel. Honest toil. <laughs> Imagine saying honest work that way, right? Just awful. <laughs> this nerd agent also speculated that both Siegel and Virginia Hill were involved in drug trafficking. He just needed to prove it. <gasps> He's like, They were smoking reefer. <laughs> He said this of Virginia Hill. Oh, boy. He said she was, quote, a fabulous woman of mystery in L.A. who has unlimited funds at her disposal. Virginia Hill wears daring clothes, (sighs) smokes and drinks excessively, (sighs) uses foul language, considerable makeup, spends money, and is promiscuous. Oh, (laughs) that's him coming at the end of writing that. Why is he so horny for her? He's so horny. He's jealous. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, I think he's just a jealous he's hater. He's jealous of everything Ben has that he doesn't. He totally. wants to be Ben. He wants to be Ben. Absolutely. And he never will be. Nope. A new blow for the Flamingo came in August of that same year when the national CPA offices ordered the construction be stopped, overriding the regional order that they had gotten in April. So Siegel was like, all right, I got to bribe someone. Yeah. Because this is fucking bullshit. On a recorded phone call Siegel made to Mo Sedway, he can be heard trying to arrange this bribe in code. I'm going to read you a transcript of that <laughs> phone call. Siegel, did you get that money from the places like I told you? Sedway, the what? <laughs> Se- Siegel, the money. Sedway, from where? Siegel. From the place where we made up you were going to get it from. <laughs> the place we made up. Sedway, yeah. Siegel, do you know what I'm talking about, Moe? <laughs> Sedway, no, I don't. <laughs> Siegel, well, did we discuss you getting it? Sedway, I don't remember. Just tell me. <laughs> Siegel, you have a wonderful memory. I only discussed one thing about getting some money with you for you to give to some people. Don't you know where you're supposed to get it from? Ugh. Sedway, the 4000 Siegel, 4000 Am I getting the 4000 Moe? <laughs> Sedway, huh? Siegel, <laughs> well, what does the 4000 got to do with giving some money to some people? Sedway, oh, I know what you mean. Oh, my God. <laughs> Siegel, do you get it? Sedway, no, I don't get it. He'd- <laughs> How is he still on the phone with this guy? <laughs> <laughs> he don't want to give no money. Siegel, why don't he want to give? Sedway, he says he don't have to give no commissioners any money. Siegel, all right, don't give anybody anything. <sighs> and that was the end of the phone call. That's so frustrating. <laughs> By September, Siegel was able to persuade the CPA that construction of the Flamingo had actually started before March 26th, and the expensive casino project continued, much to the chagrin of FBI agent Ostelfoff. Hmm. 
Later that month, the general contractor, Del Webb, was like, dude, you owe me a lot of money, and if I don't get paid, we're stopping the construction. In a move of intimidation, Siegel informed Webb of just how many men he had killed before. Then he laughed and said, there's no chance that you'll get killed. We only kill each other. <laughs> By this point, the Flamingo had cost, was costing $4 million. Damn. And Siegel still needed to raise an additional $1.5 million. He decided to reach out to his buddies back east. He flew to New York in October of 1946 to meet with syndicate leaders, including Frank Costello and Meyer Lansky. Frank Costello arranged to have one of his guys send somewhere between $1 and $3 million in cash to Siegel in Las Vegas. Back in Vegas, Lansky urged Siegel to cut his losses and just sell the Flamingo. He's like, just get out get out right now. This is a fucking money pit. Yeah. It, this is a disaster. Siegel reportedly paid some of his $500,000 debt to Del Webb, and construction continued. He was determined. It looked like at this point, though, Siegel's planned opening of March 1947 might actually happen. Good. Siegel also continued outfitting the property with extravagant touches, including a moat with real live flamingos. Ooh. Siegel's daughter Millicent said, there were between six and eight of these birds, and as the days went by, they were dropping like flies. Oh, no. The the climate in Las Vegas is different than in Florida. Yeah. This was not a good climate for them. No. And they probably need humidity. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah. And Siegel, Millicent Siegel said she saw her dad her dad shouting, Those goddamn flamingos are dying on me. God, <laughs> oh, that's so awful. It's horrible. Soon after, Siegel pushed the flamingo opening up to December twenty sixth. And everyone's like, Why? Yeah. We're going to open in March. He's like, no, we're going to open the day after Christmas. Everyone's like, that's even fucking stupider. He has a plan. <laughs> but he has a plan. In a panic to open the hotel casino, Siegel strong-armed Wilkerson into taking out a $600,000 loan to help keep the Flamingo afloat. Meanwhile, Siegel was still selling shares of the company <sighs> that didn't even exist. Yeah. Siegel hoped that the success of the Flamingo would eventually pay off all these investors. Right. During a meeting with their lawyers, Siegel demanded that Wilkerson give up his stake in the company. Siegel told Wilkerson's lawyer, quote, he's going to have to do this. I sold 150% of that, this deal, and I don't have 150%. Only 100 And everyone's going to have to cut, including Wilkerson. According to his lawyer, Greg Boutzer, when they refused Siegel's demand, Siegel responded, I can only tell you if I don't deliver the interest to the people in the East, I'm going to be killed. And before I go, you're going to go first. And don't take that lightly. I will kill you if I don't get that interest. Damn. Boutzer claims that he responded to Siegel by telling him to sit down and shut up. Whoa. Bold move, right? Yeah. Then he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the fucking FBI. I'm going to write an affidavit and go to the FBI and tell them what you're up to. And then Siegel was attracted to him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then Siegel fell in love with him. And Boutzer then got up and left with his client, who, by the way, had pissed his pants. 
Oh my God. Wilkerson was so scared he peed his pants during this thing. Damn. Yeah. That's scared. Now, Boutser did actually go to the FBI. He wrote an affidavit and sent it to them by telegram. He told Wilkerson, you need to get out of Las Vegas and just stay away from this whole thing for now. Yeah. Wilkerson then went to Europe. When the Flamingo opened that December, he was in Paris. Siegel was just happy that Wilkerson was out of the way, and now he had control over the casino ahead of its opening. Yes. Though much of the Flamingo appeared magnificent a week before opening, there was still a lot of work that needed to be done. For one thing, many of the guest rooms didn't even have furniture. (gasps) And the bathrooms didn't have toilets. Whoa. In these guest rooms. There was just like holes in the ground. That's not classy. (laughs) This is not class all the way. So there's no way that anyone can stay at the Flamingo. It's just a casino and lounge at this point. The penthouse, however, was ready, and Siegel and Virginia Hill moved into it that month. Siegel had planned for a star-studded grand opening, but in the weeks ahead of the December 6th opening, stars and entertainers were dropping out. Why? Because it was Christmas time. Yeah. People were with their families. Yeah. Or if they were traveling, they were traveling to their families other places. They weren't going to go to a casino in the middle of the desert. No. George Raft called Siegel to let him know that William Randolph Hearst, who made newsreels for MGM, had told everyone at the studio not to go. Ooh. Raft himself was really hesitant about going, but he was scared of upsetting Siegel, so he he's like, I'll go, but yeah. he didn't want to go. Some of the stars who were still set to come were Ava Gardner, Lucille Ball, and Veronica Lake. Siegel considered canceling the opening, but instead decided to just make it a three-day opening event. Like, yeah. all right, well, if you can't come on the 26th, come on the 27th. Yeah. So it would be the 26th, the 27th, and the 28th of this grand opening. Around this time, syndicate leaders arranged a meeting in Havana to discuss a few different matters, including matters about Siegel. (gasps) In attendance was Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Frank Costello, Albert Anastasia, and others. Most of the men at this meeting had made sizable investments in the Flamingo. They discussed how the original $100 million budget of the hotel casino had now ballooned to $6 million. Wait, $100 million to $6 million? I'm sorry, $1 million. Okay. I'm I sorry. Like, I was like, that doesn't sound bad. <laughs> I was like, no. $100 million was no. the original? The original budget was $1 million, and now it was costing $6 million. So huge. Huge, yeah. huge. And they're like, why is it costing this much? Right. And now he's even this much more in debt. This is fucking crazy. Lansky attempted to give his lifelong friend the benefit of the doubt, saying that the casino would soon be making a ton of money, but the other men in the room were very skeptical. They also didn't approve of this Virginia Hill chick, who they believed was skimming money from the syndicate. Hill was believed to have stashed close to a million dollars in a Swiss bank account. This also brought up the questioning of if Siegel himself knew of her skimming. Just how much could this casino cost to build? Right. Lansky knew this discussion was bad news for his friend. He begged the men in the room to give Siegel a chance. Lucky Luciano would later call Siegel from his home in Sicily and say that if the Flamingo didn't begin to generate a serious profit, he would be killed. 
The morning of the opening, Siegel was busy doing last-minute cleanup at the Flamingo. There was a problem with the waterfall on the property. He discovered that a pregnant cat had made its home inside the sump pump and had given birth to six kittens. Aww. One worker suggested, well, let's flush them out. What? And Siegel was like, you bother those kittens and you just lost a job. Yay. I was really happy to hear that. Honestly, I was like, I know she wouldn't include this story if it was awful. <laughs> so that was the only thing oh. keeping me going. Oh, there's no way I'd include a bad story. No, he was like, you fucking touch those cats. Aww. So the cats were saved. Yay. They got to enjoy life uh, being born at the Flamingo Hotel. I mean, very historic birthplace yeah. for these kittens. He ordered that the waterfall just stay off for the night until the kittens found yeah. their way out on their own. Siegel had chartered planes for his celebrity guests, but as luck would have it, a storm hit Los Angeles, and none of these big stars were willing to board the train that Siegel had arranged as backup transportation. Oh, shit. They're not getting on these little planes in this huge rainstorm. No. And they're like, oh, I don't want to take the train. Yeah. We'll see you next time. Yeah, that sucks. George Raft did show up, as did Sid Grauman and George Sanders. Another guest that night was Benny Binion. Oh, my God. Yeah. Binion's. Binion's. Binion's Casino. Yeah, he's like checking out the competition. He's checking out the competition. When the guests arrived, they were greeted by the spectacular yet gaudy sight of the flamingo. In Schneerson's book, he describes the interiors that night. Quote, the casino they entered was glamorous, but very unfinished. The bar in tufted green and tomato leather looked over the top, even for a casino in the desert. So too the statues, thick draperies, and deep plush carpeting. Everywhere were massive bouquets of flowers. Jimmy Durante, who was there that night, told Siegel, the place looks like a cemetery with dice tables and slot machines. <laughs> Sounds nice. <laughs> I'd love to go to this place. It sounds cool. Uh, also, according to the surrealness of the scene, was that there were still drop cloths hanging around the lobby. Oh, right. Because they're still doing construction yeah. everywhere. Also, the air conditioning kept breaking. Oh, no. During this night. That's not good. It was just kind of like... I mean, our, luckily it's December, I guess, but... Yeah, yeah, it's not that hot. But still, there's a lot of people in there. Yeah. It probably got hot. Totally. Well, like we've said, there's no ventilation or anything no. in these places. The house lost a ton of money that night, and the gamblers all went home with lots of money. This was not good. Yeah. Uh, Why is that? <laughs> well, I don't know. It seems like it's kind of a mystery. It might have been that there were rival croupiers and blackjack and card dealers that had come from rival casinos. Yeah. To sort of fuck them over. Right. Regardless, is that would be a problem that would persist in the early days of the okay. Flamingo, is that the house was just losing money all the time. Yeah, which, which is, is like impossible in a casino. Almost. Yeah, it's yeah. unheard of. To make matters worse financially, the rooms at the Flamingo weren't ready yet, so the guests had to stay at other hotels for the night. Yeah. Like he couldn't even make money from them staying That's a bummer. There. Yeah. The gambler who did lose money at the tables that night was George Raft. He managed, oh my God. He managed to lose money. He lost $65,000. That's got to feel bad. Yeah, he's like the one dude. He's like, I'm the only loser who lost. <laughs> <laughs> that is embarrassing. He went back the next night and he's like, I'm going to 
I'm going to win it back. Of course. And Siegel was like, stop, don't win it. I don't want you to win He's it. He's like, back. you're my only profit. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> By the Flamingo's third opening night, things were looking up. Many of the stars who had canceled showed up and more of the gamblers were losing money to the house. It wasn't a huge success though. But over the course of those first three nights, 28,000 people showed up. That's a lot. So it was, it was successful in some ways, but also not successful in other ways. Right. These, but it's like a rough open. It was a very rough open, I yeah. would say. The first few weeks were proving the casino to being a bust. The hotel casino was not the moneymaker that Siegel had envisioned. Dean Jennings, who wrote the 1967 Siegel biography, We Only Kill Each Other, posited that many of the Flamingo's failures lied in Siegel's demand for control. He said in his book, quote, Siegel had, be- had been unbearably autocratic about every activity in the hotel. He was so emotionally involved in his beautiful but soulless castle in the desert that he had lost perspective. He tried to supervise the kitchen crew, hire the big-name entertainers, appoint the pit bosses, choose the decor for the hotel rooms, and personally improve, approve every employee. He simply could not stay in the background. Not only... Not... What? Not was he able to clear his reputation as a gangster with a vile temper. He came there as Bugsy Siegel. He remained there as Bugsy Siegel. So he, he, said, he thinks, like... A big part of this disaster was a result of, like, Siegel's ego. He couldn't delegate, too. He couldn't delegate. He was very, he was a control freak about this entire operation. Well, and that's why these type of things have someone in charge of every aspect, you know? No one does it all. That's crazy. It's too much to manage. Well, no one's an expert in decor and construction and gambling, whatever stuff. Right. Yeah, there's too many elements there. Yeah. Siegel was also spending a ton of money securing entertainment for the casino, including Lena Horne and Abbott and Costello. Ooh. The house was still losing money to gambling. Siegel attempted to root out any sketchy card dealers and croupiers from the Flamingo. He's like, right. all right, who's, who's rigging this? I'm shocked that that wasn't one of his main things he took care of. Do you I, know what I mean? Like, I think he just had so much other shit. Because that's like where he literally had background in gambling. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I uh, mean, I don't know. I, yeah. It's honestly, the book didn't go too deep into. It's also wild that these people would con these gangsters. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know. It's crazy. I don't know. But look, the casino just wasn't very profitable yeah. in these first few months. He was concerned that these rival casinos were sabotaging him. Yeah. The one thing going right was that by January of 1947, the FBI had ceased investigating Siegel and they never turned up any evidence to arrest him. That's nice. (laughs) (laughs) That was like the one good thing happening right now. While Siegel continued to pour money into the Flamingo, whether by acquiring a list of entertainment or finishing up the construction on the hotel rooms he came to the sad realization that he would need to temporarily close the property. (gasps) At this time, Virginia Hill left Las Vegas and rented a mansion in Beverly Hills at 810 North Linden Drive. She gave Siegel his own key to the place. During this time, Siegel was losing even more money. 
He asked George Raft for a $100,000 loan, which he gave to him. Then he sold Raft $65,000 worth of stock, which of course didn't even exist. Yeah. George Raft was like, yeah, I'll give you the money. He didn't expect He knew to he wasn't getting it, it back. He, yeah. he knew he wasn't getting it back, but he gave it to his friend. The Flamingo reopened on March 1st, 1947, with the Andrews sisters performing that night to a packed crowd. By this time, Siegel owed the contractor, Del Webb, over a million dollars. He wrote him two checks totaling $300,000, and both of these checks bounced. (laughs) (laughs) Next, Wilkerson was ready to sell his 48% stake in the company to Siegel, who managed to get a deal at $600,000 for it. Wilkerson, who was still under instruction to stay away from Siegel, had his business partner, Tom Seward, negotiate this deal. According to Wilkerson's son, when Seward traveled to Las Vegas to sign the papers for the sale, he met with both Siegel and Lansky. Siegel then apparently said, if your partner were here right now, I'd blow his fucking brains out. Whoa. He was mad at this dude. Yeah. Tensions were also rising between Siegel and Mo Sedway. Sedway, who had originally helped Siegel with expanding his race wire business and with the Flamingo, was now trying to distance himself from Siegel as he wanted to go legit. He told Virginia's brother Chick that before he died, he was going to kill Wilkerson and Sedway and called them the two biggest bastards that ever lived. Wow. Syndicate leaders were reportedly alarmed of Siegel's animosity towards Sedway, given that they had been friends, and also they believed Sedway to be a very trustworthy person. Well, he's coming like he's coming off a little unhinged. Yes. And mob don't like people they don't control, who are like out of control. He is. He's starting I think he yeah, he feels like this catastrophe of a casino is definitely causing him to become unglued and yeah. feel out of control, yeah. and he doesn't like to feel out of control, and it's causing him to act this way, yeah. for sure. Following the reopening of the Flamingo, Virginia Hill moved back into the penthouse suite with Siegel, but she was irritated. First of all, she had terrible allergies whenever she went to Las Vegas. Uh-oh. And second, Siegel was flirting with one of the casino's cigarette girls. Uh-oh. And she did not <laughs> like that. The two women engaged in a cat fight, and it was a pretty serious cat fight. Damn. Hill later said of the incident, I hit a girl in the flamingo, and Ben told me I wasn't a lady. We got into a big fight. Then I hit him. (laughs) (laughs) We got into a big fight. I had been drinking, and I left. Now, the cigarette girl wound up suing Virginia Hill, because she was admitted to the hospital oh, shit. with these big scratches on her face, and she also dislocated her vertebrae. Damn. After the fight with the cigarette girl, Siegel found Hill unconscious in the penthouse from an overdose of sleeping pills. Oh, my God. Hill was rushed to the hospital and saved. To add even more stress to Siegel's life, his father, Max, passed away on April 17, 1947. In May, the Flamingo finally made some money. It generated a $250,000 profit that month. Siegel, however, still owed millions of dollars to various people, but at least things were turning around. Lansky reportedly told syndicate leaders in New York how well the Flamingo was doing in an attempt to spare Siegel's life. 
Lansky later said that Ben Siegel was my friend until his final day. I never quarreled with him. But Siegel's romance with Virginia Hill seemed to be disintegrating. She had grown tired of life at the Flamingo and found that her rented Beverly Hills home was an oasis from everything Siegel in Las Vegas. She flew to Vegas and told Siegel that she would be spending the summer in Paris alone and that they were breaking up for now. She said that they planned to reconvene at the end of the summer to see how they felt. She was leaving on June 10th, and Siegel was allowed to stay at, their Los, er, at her Los Angeles home until the lease ran out on June 23rd. Also staying at the house would be her brother Chick and his girlfriend. Hill says that the last time she ever spoke to Siegel was over the phone while she was in Chicago, which is where she stopped on her way to Europe. Hill finally departed for Paris from New York on June 16th. Before he left Las Vegas, Siegel apparently handed a suitcase of cash to his favorite bodyguard, a guy named Fat Irish Green. He said to hang on to it, hang on to it until he got back from L.A. Around this time, Chick and his girlfriend, who was named Jerry, were staying at Virginia's home while Siegel was still in Vegas. One night, Chick heard a commotion in the house and later discovered the kitchen door was open. It looked to have been jimmied open. Siegel arrived at Virginia Hills' Beverly Hills home around 2.30 a.m. on June 19th. He was with his friend Swifty Morgan, who spent the night that night. The next day, Siegel spoke with his ex-wife Esta on the phone to arrange for their daughters to take the train in to L.A. to spend the summer with their dad. Following this phone call were several business calls made by Siegel. At some point, his friend Alan Smiley arrived at the house. He was there when they all got arrested for bookmaking at the yeah. Sunset Towers Hotel. Siegel had scheduled several meetings for that day, and Alan came along with him. They went to Mickey Cohen's house in Brentwood, and they also went to George Raft's house in Coldwater Canyon. Raft would later say that Siegel looked pale and exhausted. After his meetings, Siegel went to the barbershop for a haircut, a shave, and a manicure. He finished his day with a trip to his lawyer's office, where he reportedly had an outburst over an unpaid fee of $35. Hmm. That night, Siegel, Alan Smiley, Chick Hill, and his girlfriend Jerry went out to dinner at Jack's in Santa Monica. Now, I have a menu for Jack's. It doesn't exist anymore, but it looked really good. Where is it in Santa Monica? Um, or where was it? Well, it says Jack's at the beach. So oh, nice. I think it was on Ocean Avenue, right? maybe. Okay, so this is a very classic of this time menu. The appetizers are shrimp cocktail, crab meat cocktail, lobster cocktail, Ooh. Louisiana jumbo shrimp in shell, northern cracked crab on iced platter. Ooh, I want all of them. <laughs> all of these sound really good. For soups, you can have our own special clam chowder or cream of tomato. They have a few different kinds of salads. They have one called the salad bowl, which is just mixed greens with French dressing. Ooh. Uh, you can also get hearts of lettuce with French dressing. I guess those are the only salads. Oh, wait. You can also get a tableside Caesar salad. Of course. You can get a tableside chef salad and guacamole tableside. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. They have a variety of, this is like a very seafood heavy restaurant. It's at the beach. It's at the beach. <laughs> You can get 
Some of their specialties are speckled Colorado mountain trout. That's done Amandine style. Of course. Frog legs. No. Filet <laughs> of sole, whole lobster thermidor, lobster a la Newburgh, Louisiana shrimp curry rice pilaf with major grazed chutney. Ooh, that sounds good. Oysters Rockefeller. Mm, classic. Oysters Kirkpatrick. Who? <laughs> named after Chris Kirkpatrick's great-great-grandfather. <laughs> I looked up Oysters Kirkpatrick because I needed to know what the yeah, fuck what that, is that was. I, there wasn't anything. It must have been special. It must be a special, yeah. Wow. Kirk- I can't believe that his grandson grew up to be in the... Um, in InSync. In that's crazy. That's what I'm going... <laughs> I, that's what I'm going with. I think that this is a dish created by Chris Kirkpatrick's great-great-grandfather. And there's no description? It just says Oysters Kirkpatrick? <laughs> yes. That's all it says. What is it? Like, cab- like is Kirkpatrick Irish? I've I guess n- Patrick. <laughs> is it like corned beef and cabbage? Ew. <laughs> I'm on top to of fi- oysters. What's on top of these oysters? I it's am- probably some breadcrumb something or other, right? Yeah, it's honestly probably similar to Oysters Rockefeller. If anybody knows what the fuck an Oysters Kirkpatrick is, let me know. Because I looked it up. It's going to drive me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I need I did, to know. I did like two pages of Google and all, it was like, did you mean, boy, yeah. it said, did you, <laughs> did you mean you're a fucking dumbass? Did you mean Chris Kirkpatrick? <laughs> Because that's the only two Kirkpatricks. Yeah. I have never heard of a Kirkpatrick beyond Chris Kirkpatrick. I like. Have you ever heard? How of do anyone? you not have a description of this? Don't they know? We want to know. I don't think menus always had descriptions on them like they do now. Wait, I have. It says Kilpatrick. Oh, Kill. Wait a second. That's what I'm trying to tell you. When I looked it up, it said, did you mean oysters kill Kill Patrick? Kill Patrick? I think they're the same thing because this says oysters Kirkpatrick, also called oysters kill Patrick. What is it? Um, This is created by the chef from the Palm Court of San Francisco's Palace Hotel. Uh, Well, what the fuck are they? The dish after John C. Kirkpatrick, who managed the hotel... Um, the similar dishes no doubt existed before that was given this. Oh, oysters topped with bacon, Worcestershire sauce, ketchup, and other flavorings and broiled. That's probably good. It's probably good. Um, I still think it's invented by Chris Kirkpatrick's great, great grandfather. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. So it's like, has like a syrupy bacon sauce on that it. That looks good. Yeah. Honestly, I would eat that. I want those. Okay. Uh, this, so what else we got? Dude, this menu's good. They have. This uh, is my favorite type of restaurant. Like I know this kind of stuff. Yeah. They also have your classic steakhouse stuff. You know, you these seafood restaurants, they always have a steak option. They have Jack's special chopped sirloin steak with mushroom sauce and potato. They have a New York cut sirloin, filet mignon, mush with mushroom sauce. You can get that. They have potatoes and vegetables, demi french fried potatoes, <laughs> hash browns, baked Idaho, which I assume is just a baked potato. Asparagus with drawn butter, plant, lots of vegetables with drawn butter, cream spinach. Of course. Desserts, pies from our own oven. You can get them all a la mode. Our own oven. <laughs> That's what it says, from our own oven. They're not getting They're these not from a bakery. They're bringing them in. No, these are from the Jack's own oven. You can get them with cheese. I never got that. 
people the apple who, pie with cheese. The apple pie, like in theory, I I understand why it would work because people eat fruit with cheese. But I, there's something. Grotesque. Look, I've always been obsessed with this idea, and the one time I made a Martha Stewart apple pie that had a little cheddar in the crust. Well, that sounds and good. And it was very good. That sounds <laughs> But I really agree. Good. It's like the combination. The flavors seem good to me, but it's like the textures don't seem right to me, if that makes sense. I know exactly what you mean. They um, also have spumoni. Ooh, I love spumoni. What? I do. <laughs> Are you fucking serious? Why, why would you hate it so much? I have a very traumatic experience eating spumoni. Well, I'm so sorry <laughs> to you, but it's not spumoni's fault. <laughs> I went to, um, I was, this was like so many years ago. I was at Marin Joe's, which is one of my favorite restaurants. Yeah, I love that place. One of my favorite restaurants. Well, that place is like this type of place in many ways. Yeah. Like the Caesar salad, the steaks. Well, the menu hasn't changed since the 30s or whenever the fuck it opened. So I ordered, I've never even had Spumoni before. And I was there with my friend Juliet and I ordered Spumoni for some fucking reason because I wanted to be adventurous. And it was so gross to me. Granted, I was like 18 when I did this. But I remember, but we now have a saying that we say to each other all the time, which is never order the spumoni. Well, sometimes I think ice cream can be bad at places if it isn't served a lot. Yeah. It's like icy. Yeah. I like the flavor because that's the ice cream, like the pistachio, and then it's like a cherry ice cream and a chocolate or something. I think I just didn't have a good version of it. Yeah. Uh, or, yeah. or I was just maybe maybe my palate's changed. Can I just then. say I had a triggering experience when you? I remembered something while you were reading this menu that is my buttermilk story. <gasps> because one time I went to a restaurant and I was very excited because I was going to get steak and I ordered the chopped sirloin and I didn't realize that it's basically a hamburger patty. <laughs> And I was like Salisbury steak type deal. Like right. it's just this chopped sirloin is basically hamburger. Right. And I was like so upset because I was like, this is a hamburger. <laughs> like I thought I was getting steak. Right. Like I had somehow fixed the system. I was like, oh, I found a steak that's only $8. Like the cheap steak, right? Right. It was so upsetting to me. And I'll, I'll always be angry at chopped sirloin for having that name and tricking me. I've never even heard of that before. And so I, until this moment, thought, oh, it's pre-cut steak no it's basically ground meat but it's like hand chopped instead of ground i guess but it's basically formed into a patty that's what it is i guess it's a higher quality meat hamburger patty but it's still it tastes like hamburger i mean come on it's hamburger texture uh anyway come on so that was traumatizing look i i i want to go to this restaurant yeah it sounds great so look they had a great meal at jack's that night nice when they arrived back at the house, Siegel noted that it smelled like flowers. Chick Hill said something weird, apparently. He said to Siegel, when someone smells flowers and there aren't any in the house, it means they're going to die. <gasps> apparently, he said this was an old saying in the South that his mom used to say. <laughs> now, the scent of flowers could have was most likely just coming in from outside. There was jasmine blooming. It's The jasmine's blooming. It's... <laughs> Well, it's it's June in Los yeah, Angeles. That does smell very it's, good. It's very fragrant, and if you have a they had a window open in the house, so it's like oh yeah, it smells like jasmine. Because sometimes you just will suddenly get a very strong whiff of jasmine. Yeah, it's a it's it a, smells great. It's a beautiful thing. Siegel and Alan Smiley retired to the living room at ten forty five p.m. where they sat reading the paper. Siegel was seated on the sofa in front of the windows. 
Little did he know that a gunman was waiting outside those windows. The first shot came through the window and went into Siegel's head and out through his right eye. Ooh. The eyeball was sent flying across the room. Oh. Then another shot came to his head, exiting his neck. Then three additional shots were fired into him, two of them in the chest. A stray bullet grazed Smiley, who was now on the ground shouting for someone to cut the lights off. Yeah. Jerry came down and called the police. Meanwhile, Chick went back upstairs to the safe where he got a gun and Virginia's jewelry and he stashed them before the police got there. Both Chick and Jerry said that they were upstairs when the shots rang out. Right. The photos taken at the crime scene would become notorious for their graphic nature. Have you seen these pictures? They're gruesome. Yeah. One photo showing the destruction that had been brought upon Siegel's beautiful face. Ugh. He even still kind of looked good, even with his eyeball out. Well, you could tell he was hot. Yeah. The Los Angeles Times... Oh, excuse me. The Los Angeles Herald would publish a front-page photo of Siegel's toe with the toe tag from the morgue on it with the headline, Homicide. I love that photo. It's a great photo. It's very artistic for some reason. Like, it's an unusually artistic like yeah. crime scene photo. <laughs> it, it really is. Moments after Siegel's murder, Gus Greenbaum and Mo Sedway were at the Flamingo in the lobby making the announcement that Siegel had died and they were now in charge of the casino. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, that is so weird to me. Like the book said it was minutes later. I guess they had heard yeah. over some newsreel. I don't know. Yeah. But according to this book, it was pretty soon after right. he died that they were like, all right, we have to make an announcement. It's almost like they knew it was coming. <laughs> ben Siegel's dead. Greenbaum would spend the next 10 years managing the casino with Sedway until his gambling and drug addiction caused him to start skimming money. Oh. Him and his wife were later found with their throats slit in their <gasps> Arizona home. Ooh. Siegel's murder has never been solved, but hmm. police have long suspected that someone connected to the syndicate was responsible. There are, of course, questions that have arisen from this theory, given that the Flamingo was finally generating a profit, and also Lansky was still very close with Siegel and really lobbying for him to right. be given another chance. Another suspect in the murder is racewire operator Russell Brophy, who had been at odds with Siegel. Mo Sedway has also been suspected. However, he himself couldn't have done it given that he was in Las Vegas right. at the time of the shooting. However, people have suspected, oh, he had p- other people do it. Right. Or he knew something. Sedway was brought in for questioning after he appeared in LA following the murder. Beverly Hills Police Chief Clinton Anderson was convinced that Mo Sedway had something to do with it. Sedway was let go from the police interview after he said he was short of breath, and then he was admitted to a hospital. From the hospital, Sedway absconded back to Las Vegas on an overnight train. Wow. Anderson said, I never had a chance to talk to him, but I was convinced, and still am, that he had a hand in the seagull killing. He knew who did it. Virginia Hill of course, has also been another person who was suspected of this. At the time of Siegel's murder, his two daughters, Barbara and Millicent, were on a train bound for Los Angeles. 
Yeah. So they had like boarded this train right before he was murdered. And so awful. This is 1947. There's no phones or internet. They're young, they're young girls. They don't read the newspaper. Right. They're just on this train. So they wouldn't learn of their father's death until a few days later when the train stopped at at a depot outside of Los Angeles. Waiting for them at the depot in a car was their uncle Maurice, their mother, and Alan Smiley. They were shocked to see their mom Mm. was there, but she had flown from New York as soon as she heard. Millicent later recalled that she was grateful that she heard the news from their mother rather than from a newspaper. Right. When Esta Siegel was questioned by the police, she kept her answers very simple and didn't give away anything about Siegel's doings. She also claimed that she had never even heard of Virginia Hill and didn't learn about her until she read about her in the paper following the death. Siegel's private funeral service was only attended by his brother Maurice, Esta Siegel, his sister Bessie, his daughters, and Alan Smiley. According to a reporter at the Los Angeles Examiner, it was over in five minutes. A rabbi delivered a short prayer, and that was it, basically. Siegel is interred at Hollywood Forever in the Beth Olam Mausoleum. A plaque commemorating Siegel was also placed above his father's plaque at the Bialystoker Synagogue in New York. I've never seen his grave site at at Hollywood. I mean, it's in that mausoleum. Right. I haven't seen it before. I wonder who else is in that mausoleum with him. Esta is in that mausoleum. Oh, she is. She is. That's well, kind of sweet. Yeah, that she was like loyal to him even after she, all the shit he I put mean, her through. She was devastated. Yeah. when he was killed, she never recovered from it. One of her granddaughters said that later on, when she visited her in New York, in her bedroom, she had basically a shrine. Aww. To like, she still had pictures of him. Yeah, up in the bedroom. I don't think she ever got over him, even though they had like he wasn't. I mean, he was a he was obviously not a good husband because he was cheating on her, but he still was really good to her in a lot of ways and was a it a, seemed like he did treat her very well. He did like as far as giving her a big huge apartment and like you know what I mean? He yeah. didn't screw over. He didn't fuck her over like that. I think he really loved and respected Esta and he also according to their daughters was a very good father to yeah. them. So Right, if you're a good father, you don't fuck the mother over. Yeah. I mean, and, bottom line. And after following his death, Lansky was like, we're going to take care of you. Esther, because Seal didn't have much money left. There wasn't any money. Right, really. and I like that Lansky was sort of his loyal friend. Till the end, Yeah, Lansky was. I would love to do an episode about Meyer Lansky. Yeah. He had, I mean, he had s- such an interesting life. As well, obviously. Yeah. And I would love to talk about him and uh, just the stuff beyond his relationship with Siegel. So, yeah, that's the Bugsy Siegel series. We did it. We did it. did it. I did it. Thank you. I have one more menu that I would like to discuss before we end this episode because there is a Bugsy Siegel tribute restaurant in Las Vegas. Oh. At the El Cortez. Oh, my God. I've never been here before, even though I have stayed at the El Cortez before. This restaurant is called Seagulls 1941. The tagline of this restaurant is, food so good, it's sure to be a hit. 
Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Here's some of the items they have an it's it's a 24-hour restaurant. They have a lot of different breakfast options. Okay. Including a smoked salmon platter with bagels. Nice. So they definitely have some Jewish influence. They also offer matzo ball soup. Ooh. They have shrimp cocktail, crispy twice fried chicken wings. Crispy what? Crispy twice fried chicken wings. They're fried twice. Oh, okay. Tossed salad. Iceberg wedge. So it's like kind of like an old school yeah. menu here. I mean iceberg wedge. What interests me the most about this menu are the is the Meyer Lansky burger and the <laughs> Virginia Hill Flamingo burger. Now I don't want to eat the Meyer Lansky burger, but I do think it's funny they have a burger named after him. On this burger is pastrami, Swiss cheese, coleslaw, pickles, Russian dressing on a ciabatta bun. I don't know why they put it on a ciabatta bun. Because everything's on a fucking ciabatta bun. <laughs> so it's like a Reuben it's on a, a hamburger. It's a Reuben with a hamburger. I don't want that hamburger on my Reuben. I just want the Reuben. What? Who wants that? They're like, eh, just put some Jew shit on there. <laughs> That's what they said. What, what should we put on the Meyer Reuben. That's the Jewishest of all sandwiches. Just, just, just Jew that burger up. The, put a fucking lock on. Put a... <laughs> Put a fucking gefilte fish schmear on there. Oh, my God. The Virginia Hill Flamingo Burger sounds good to me, and I would order this because I like turkey burgers. It's a turkey burger with avocado, onion rings, caramelized tomato, and jack cheese. I mean, if you're going to have a turkey burger, you got to make it as unhealthy as possible. Yeah, you got to load it up. That sounds good, actually. They have inexplicably Seagull's Fish and Chips... He wasn't... I don't know why they gave him this British-ass dish. (laughs) Fish. We want to put fish and chips on it. Yeah. The menu. They're seagulls. We'll just call it seagulls. Seagulls, fish and chips with hush puppies and coleslaw. Ooh, hush puppies is a nice addition. It is a nice addition. They have a country fried steak dinner. That's a nice touch. That's the Virginia Hill, the southern element. Right, because they also have southern fried chicken. This menu is all over the fucking place. They have liver and onions. That's very Jewish. But that's for the very old Jews that eat there. I fortunately didn't eat, eat any, a lot of organ meat growing up. It's not for me. I don't it's like not, it. It's I've not definitely for me. had like pate and stuff. And it's like, I just, it's not like something I can't take a bite of, but I don't really want it ever or crave it ever. Yeah. Uh, like I've definitely tried it like when it was fancier. Yeah. Not like liver and onions, but like whatever high-end pate. I'm like, okay, I'll have a bite. And it's like, eh, that's fine. I'm, I, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't need more of it. Yeah. It's very strong flavored. I don't like it. It's not for me. No. But I, I, would nope, get, nope. I would get this Virginia Hill burger. Although I, I am, I do love the idea of a sandwich called chopped liver, <laughs> but I don't want it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, no. just the title is very funny to me. Yeah. I mean... Because it became a saying. We should go here... When we're in Vegas, even though let's you, take a peek in, I don't think the food is very good. The, oh, That's my prediction. No, but just just like looking at that menu, it's too all over the place. Mm. So it's like, how can you possibly do all of those things well? Like southern burgers, matzo ball soup. It just seems too uh, all over the place to me. I don't know. I'm very curious. I maybe I want to go here for breakfast. 
Because the breakfast is always safe. Because even if it's bad, it's not that expensive. They have hollow French toast. That might be okay. With vanilla, cinnamon, confectioner sugar. It's weird they call it confectioner sugar, not powdered sugar. Maple syrup, whipped cream, and seasonal seasonal berries. They have a croissant sandwich, buttermilk pancakes, New York steak and eggs. Hmm. A fat oh, they have a fat Irish green corned beef hash. I I like corned beef hash. It's good. But they have one named after that dude, Fat yeah. Irish. They they have a few things. They make a few homage. I I'd like to go here. I've also never been to the Mob Museum in Vegas before. Oh, I would do that. Yeah. No, I think we should go to the Vegas and go to some weird places. Yeah. I for really, fun. I re- look, look, here's the thing. We could go to this restaurant. If the food is bad, we can go get more food. Well, yeah. <laughs> we we're not done. We're not done. I do like I do like the El Cortez. I mean, the El Cortez is real sort of it's not fancy. No. It's not fancy. What's at all. the fanciest hotel in old uh, Vegas? The Golden Nugget. Yeah. And it's and even that's not that fancy compared to like compared- the strip. Yeah, compared to the strip, it's it's not. I mean, like you can get probably the nicest, most modern room, I would say, at Golden Nugget. But I don't that's not why I stay in this uh, in Old Town because I'm not in my room. I'm just not in the room yeah. when I'm in Vegas. Yeah. I'm at the tables. Right. I'm blowing all my money. <laughs> anyway, I can't wait to go back to Vegas. Yeah. It'll be fun. Thank you for listening to three episodes of Bugsy Siegel. There should be some good pics. I want to see flamingo pics. I'll post some good pictures. We're going to record our after show. Bye. Bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.